So we'll continue our discussion and reflection on freedom. And isn't it interesting how we like the word freedom or release or ease or happiness, but the word itself or any of those words, it's a uh, and it kind of begs the question, freedom from what? Or happiness versus what? Release from what? So I think this is important because we, you know, these teachings, they're really for people like us caught. You know, we're in a world that doesn't feel right. Some of you know that one of the definitions or the roots of the word dukkha is a wheel that's out of true. And so, uh, you know, our life doesn't feel good. We have problems. So we want release or freedom from that, you know, what doesn't feel good. The Buddha mentioned <laughs> once of craving for existence no first beginning of the craving for existence can be perceived practitioners before which it was not after which it came to be but it can be perceived that the craving for existence has its specific condition I say all practitioners that also craving for existence has its condition that feeds it and is not without it. And what is it? Ignorance, one has to reply. But the interesting point there, because <clears throat> it's the obvious question, well, how did, how did things get off so that we need, we desire relief or release or freedom or happiness? But actually, that question isn't important. What's important is the second part of that quote, which is, but we can perceive the cause, that dukkha, the sense of something's off, the sense of being stressed or caught or burdened in life in a moment, that it has a cause. It's not without a cause or supporting condition. And what is that? Ignorance. So we talked yesterday about consciousness and uh, restricted, unrestricted consciousness and how I used uh, that image from Ajahn Sumedho, how consciousness is, becomes bound to this, the limitations of this form, the limitations of our mind. And then we have problems. But consciousness itself isn't the problem. And some of you know that teaching uh, by Chitta, uh, I'm forgetting the person's name, um, this lay person, where he talked about it isn't seeing that's the problem or what we see, but it's the craving that arises with the two. So it's not the fact that we're sensitive, that's not the problem. 
that we're seeing sights or hearing sounds or thinking thoughts or smelling smells, tasting tastes, touching things. It's not the sensitivity that's a problem, and it's not what we're thinking, not what we're seeing or smelling, touching. That's not the problem. The cause for dukkha is something that arises in conjunction with those two things. Attachment. So the you know, when we have a pleasant experience, naturally, as a sensitive creature, we're gonna lean toward it. And when there's an unpleasant experience, we're gonna lean away from it. But the attachment is something beyond that. That natural sensitivity to pleasant and unpleasant isn't the cause of dukkha. It's the identification with the desire or attachment to desire. Here's another quote from the Buddha about consciousness. If a practitioner abandons passion for, and he goes through the five aggregates, body and mind, basically, that's what the five aggregates are. The, the Buddha divided the mind up into four ways. So five, that makes five. You've got your physical experience and different aspects of the mind, feeling, perception, consciousness, and everything else in the mind, mental formations. So if a practitioner abandons passion for the five aggregates, then owing to this abandoning of passion, the support is cut off and consciousness is unestablished Consciousness, thus unestablished, undeveloped, not performing any function, is released. Owing to its release, it stays firm. Owing to its staying firm, it's contented. Owing to its contentment, it is not agitated, not agitated. One is totally unbound right within oneself. One discerns that birth has in birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done, there is nothing further for this world. In so many different ways, so many different times, the Buddha points to attachment as the one thing, the one uh, root of all of our problems. So let's, let's think about that in terms of the, the Four Noble Truths. I mentioned yesterday that there are um, three insights the Buddha suggests will arise for each of these reflections. So think of the Four Noble Truths as four reflections or four practices that lead to three insights each. So the first Noble Truth there is the experience of dukkha. There is dukkha. There is stress in life. And the three insights, there is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. So we're understanding something about dukkha, and I mentioned last night that it's here, that it's arising in this mind. The cause is also here. It's not the bad weather that is the cause for stress. It's something being attached to a different 
know, expectation. That's the cause for suffering. Bad weather is uh, unpleasant. But suffering isn't the experience of unpleasantness. Suffering is the experience of not uh, feeling somebody's violated by unpleasantness or feeling that somebody's going to be saved by pleasantness. It's the um, projection or the construction of a self, of somebody who really wants to get rid of something or really wants to get something or really doesn't care. You know, even that is a, a cause for suffering. So the second noble truth is there, uh, there is suffering, it has a cause. And the three insights here are uh, there is a cause, this should be abandoned, it has been abandoned. There is a cause, a moment-to-moment -moment cause for suffering. And this is, again, really important because when, we're, when we feel caught, we may have enough presence of mind to know that I'm suffering, that life is difficult, I'm feeling overwhelmed. But what we don't necessarily have enough clarity to see is that the cause of it is right here. It's not something I did 20 years ago or something outside of myself. But the cause of the dukkha, the stress, is something right in the moment, right in the heart or mind, right now. Well, that really would wake up. If we had that, that much understanding, that would really wake us up because all of a sudden, there's something to do. I mean, clearly, human beings are not lazy creatures. I mean, just look what we've done. <laughs> the mess we've made, it wasn't easy. <laughs> but uh, we don't want to do things that we don't think are going to have any results. But when we realize that there, I'm doing something right now that's causing a lot of trouble, we start paying attention. So there is a cause or a beginning of dukkha. And there's a real emphasis in getting, you know, in Buddhism generally, and really seeing things unfolding, seeing the natural stream of causality, of conditionality for how things unfold, how things move. And in particular, the reason we're interested in conditionality is the most relevant thing that conditionality can help us with is how we end up being a suffering human being, right? If we wanted, if you wanted to know anything about how things happen, that would be the most relevant thing to want to know. Like, how does this mind and body end up being a suffering human being? And it's the not knowing that that leads to samsara, the continuation, the repeating of experiences of suffering, of stress. So there is a cause, which is, like I've been saying, attachment or attachment to desire. So as a sensitive creature, right, we're, we've got this body-mind that's sensitive. Unavoidably, things are going to be pleasant and unpleasant to us. It's just, in a sense, written in stone. We're going to have pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experiences. But with that contact, the pleasantness of a particular experience, a particular thought, how the mind relates to that pleasantness, that contact, there's some play there. 
without mindfulness, the system is just going to grasp it. It's going to get attached. It's going to get identified with desire. You know, desire is just natural. You know, we get too close to the fire. The intention to move, it's instinctual to move away from what's hot. But that, the you know, impression that that intention makes in the mind and then in the body, the, the problem is that we, the mind does something extra. It's in the habit of constructing the sense of a self who's in danger. And it almost, it's like um, we have this sense, part of that delusion or that ignorance is the sense that we won't take care of things, this body and mind, unless we have that sense of self, unless we're overlaying a sense of self. So there is a cause. This should be let go. This has been let go of. Now, here's the tricky thing. This should be let go of. That doesn't mean to be attached to the desire to let go of desire. But when we construct this self that wants this or doesn't want that, wants to become something, wants things to be over with, when we see that, all we have to see is that it should be let go of. We have to see it as being something extra and stressful. But we don't actually need, we don't have to be attached to letting go. It's just understanding this should be let go of. This has been let go of. It's like uh, <laughs> letting go happens. Or there's a great line from the Vasudhimaga uh, commentary written hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha by Buddha Gosa, famous text, especially in Theravada Buddhism. And he has a very famous phrase or lines that say, suffering is, but no, but sufferer, no sufferer can be found. Or liberation happens, but no one who's liberated can be found. So this is useful because it seems like suffering is happening. <laughs> so at least, you know, he's in agreement that there is suffering. But the problem, this is where attachment comes in. We impute the sense that there's a sufferer. And then all of our strategies to deal with suffering start off on the wrong foot because we made this huge assumption because there's suffering there must be a sufferer and so the way I approach the problem of suffering is to try to take care of the sufferer and lo and behold of course over time we start to intuit that taking care of the sufferer is the cause of suffering that's why it's so pervasive that's why we keep bumping our head against the wall, not getting anywhere in practice. It's not that we're not motivated to address suffering. 
but we're, we're ignorant. The, the root of ignorance is not seen. This is the Buddhist definition. Ignorance is not seeing things as they are. And in particular, we're not seeing this projection, this um, habit of the mind to make this assumption that there's a sufferer. So in that first talk, when the Buddha set the wheel of truth, set the wheel of Dhamma in motion, and he laid out the Four Noble Truths, with each having three insights. So the second set of three again, there is a cause, it should be let go of, it has been let go of. Now remember, these are insights. Insight means the mind sees or understands something it hasn't seen or understood before. So we're going about our work as a practitioner, right? Working with the first noble truth. Hey, life is unpleasant. It feels heavy. And we step back from that experience and we realize, oh, this is dukkha. The weight I'm feeling in this moment should be understood, meaning not immediately reacted to or denied or distracted from, but like, this is relevant. The fact that I'm feeling off, that my heart feels burdened, that my mind feels stressed, this is relevant. It has been understood. So we recognize that there is this experience of weight, or whatever you want to call it, and it should be understood that it it's not like a miscellaneous fact in life that it's heavy at times. It's, it's the most relevant thing. Yeah, Paul? So every, um, every stress that we have, every you know, experience of Yuka always goes back to um, wrong view. Yeah, mental suffering, yeah. And that, that's, you use that for reflection, not like a, um, like a statement of fact, but is that the case in this mind? You know, and then you look, like you start doing correlations. And again, the whole, the whole awakening of the Buddha and then the men and women following the Buddha, what we awaken to little by little, sometimes big steps, sometimes just a little step, we're waking up to what the Buddha called dependent co-arising, but it's the conditionality because in order to abandon the idea that there's a sufferer that doesn't want to suffer anymore, we need a different model to understand that the experience there is suffering, right? Because that, that's undeniable. There is suffering, there is stress, there is this feeling of being burdened. So we have to awaken to this other view, which we call dependent co-arising or conditionality, that um, helps the mind get close to the experience of suffering, closer to the experience of suffering, and relate to it in a way that doesn't perpetuate the experience of suffering. And that's what this insight to dependent co-arising, that's what it gives us. It helps us understand what's going on. It helps us understand the way it is. So mental suffering keeps happening until, because we, uh, I mean, 
your question was uh, dukkha, suffering, always has a. What, what was it that? Hmm? Wrong view. Yeah, yeah. So it's always about missing, dependent, co-arising. It's and it's assuming that there's a sufferer. You know, that's the wrong view. There have been moments where Dukkha has ceased. Thank God. (laughs) But when it ceases for me, it's not because I've shifted my views to myself, oneself. Or it might not even have ceased because I'm thinking about dependent origination. Right. But it still ceases, at least temporarily. Right. Well, things are changing, right? But even though some experience of dukkha has ceased, we're still experiencing dukkha. You're experiencing the dukkha that, on some level, maybe unconscious, that it can come back. You're not out of the woods, right? So that dukkha hasn't ceased. So you're just the normal fluctuations of pain and pleasure, you know. And a lot of times, I mean, hopefully everybody here gets to experience, you know, moments of a lot of pleasantness. Uh, I think that's what keeps us somewhat sane is that we're not, you know, people who are bombarded with unpleasant mental experience, you know, often start having mental illness because of the stress or the body breaks down. So, you know, most regular human beings are cycling through times when the dukkha, relatively speaking, is diminished. And we've got enough sort of not so efficient but still somewhat effective defense systems that keep that more subtle dukkha out of consciousness. We're not aware. Like, like anybody right now aware of the uh, truth of death? You know? But that exposure we have to death, you know, we can, it's pretty easy for us to be oblivious to it a lot of the time. And illness and many other, the fact that we're going to lose things that we care about. And... Well, it depends on if it seems important. Well, I've heard this talk many times, and it's, you know, from various teachers, and it's always correct, so it's always presented differently. Um, you know, often you hear uh, there is suffering in life, and then a different thing. We make suffering out of life. Um, I love the word stress. I think that's great. Um, pain is the inevitable, generally. Suffering is the second arrow. So we're going to experience pain because the body breaks down, but we don't have to go to suffering because the path of, of practice is a path of freedom from suffering, although pain is inevitable. Like stress is inevitable. I mean, otherwise the Buddha wouldn't have, you know, become enlightened. I mean, he still had pain. He had back pain, mm-hmm. and, you know, missed thoughts, but, you know, his mind didn't go there, so we can train our mind not to go to it. Is that a question? I don't know. I mean, no. I mean, I, I love this because I've heard, you know, from many different teachers and all these people, but I love stress. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we got some for you. Instead of yeah, yeah. Because 
I mean, when, you know, just general people here at Buddhism, they're like, yeah, life is suffering. You know, uh, you know, but but you know, another thing could be we make suffering out of life or whatever. But it's not like. Well, here's, a, I think, a relevant uh, teaching from the Buddha, uh, from what you said, Julian. There is practitioners an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. If there were not that unborn, unmade, un, uh, unbecome, unfabricated, there would not be the case, uh, there would not be the case that emancipation from the born, become made, fabricated would be discerned. But precisely because there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, emancipation from the born, become made, fabricated, is discerned. So this is the world. This is a constructed world. I know it's a little. <laughs> but it's actually relevant. <laughs> I mean, we have to we have to see now this world we're constructing all the time. We don't we don't necessarily notice that, but we're putting it together, and it will never. We talked about this last night. It will never work because it's a constructed, fluid world. It's always going to be uncertain and insecure and messy. We really have to get this. This is called insight into dukkha. So the first noble truth, there is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. This is what it means. It means waking up, opening our heart to the reality that is here and now. And we have to really see the, that this conditioned existence is fundamentally stressful. So the Buddha is saying here that if that's all there was, there would be no escape. Wanting to escape when you're a conditioned being, well, where are you going to escape to? There is no escape. So the fact that uh, there is an escape, that, that an escape can be discerned, means there is something besides this conditioned realm. Yes, Bruce. responding to, to take care of. But we're taking a step back. Because our compassion and our wisdom is so strong, beside, before we just immediately respond to what we see as the sufferer, we're taking a moment and we're saying, what's going on? What's really happening here? 
What is the sufferer that wants protection or wants relief? That's the approach, exactly as you said it. So what we, do, what an ignorant human being does, you know, all of us, almost all the time, is we don't bother to pay attention to what's happening. We assume we know what's happening. There's a sufferer that wants relief. And it's tragic. I mean, the Buddha said this shortly after his awakening, how moved he was opening psychically to what's going on in the world, and of course, knowing from his own previous experience, how people wanting happiness do exactly what sets emotion suffering. And we see that. I mean, this is not a subtle truth. We see it all the time. People who buy things they don't need, people getting involved in relationships that aren't good for them. I mean, over and over, we eat too much, we sit with pain because we want to be, you know, we do all kinds of things that harm ourselves seeking happiness. And it all arises out of this confusion where the attachment to desire, the desire to get rid of, the desire to become somebody, the desire to have some sense experience, the attachment to that is our compassionate but ignorant response to our existential situation. So we are being compassionate. This is why it's so confusing, because when we look, we say, well, I'm doing the best I can, yet I keep suffering. And the problem is we're not willing to cultivate the mind that can look honestly, see clearly what's really happening, and to see what is this thing we're taking to be the sufferer. And this is where dependent origination comes in. It provides a different way of relating to what we're calling the sufferer. Normally, we relate to it as me, you know, or my friend who's a sufferer, right? But there's another way to see it, to understand it, which is in this impersonal, conditional way. It actually fits a lot better than the sense of self. But we're not interested in going there because we are so sure we're right that there's a sufferer. And, you know, this is the actual motivation for cultivating mindfulness. A lot of people get bored paying attention to the breath or coming back and feeling the achy body sitting. But when we put it in the right context that we're cultivating the mind, we're cultivating clarity that will not be confused by our presumptions. It's not easy to go beyond our presumptions. We need to um, develop such a devotion to clarity and to honesty, or what we call mindfulness, in order to break out of the grip of our views of things. And you know, different people have different ways in. Some people, it's just the devotional energy. Other people, it's a more of an intellectual curiosity, um, you know, faith, pain. Like the, last night, we talked about being up against the wall. You know, so there can be different ways to sort of help us go beyond the limitations of our current views of things. But we have to step outside, and the way, of course is the cultivation of clarity, of seeing things as they are. The problem is not seeing things as they are. The solution is cultivating.
cultivating a mind that can see things clearly. Otherwise, we'll just, we're going to play in the realm of being a sufferer and being relatively more or less skilled at being a sufferer. But we won't actually go beyond that experience. And this is also confusing because we see people who are relatively not effective being a sufferer and some people who are more effective managing the experience of being a sufferer. And so we get some reinforcement for playing in that world of trying to be better, a better sufferer. I mean, not <laughs> more suffering, but you know, better at managing the suffering. Being at better at managing being a sensitive creature, still with the idea that I'm the sensitive creature who likes pleasant experiences, who doesn't like unpleasant experiences. And I think it's fair to say most of us people doing Buddhist practice are in that realm. We're doing the Buddhist practice to be better at managing our suffering. But that's okay, because if we really do the practice as it's laid out, clarity will develop, and we will see the limitations of that strategy for happiness, and it will naturally evolve. Insight changes what, how we understand our path in life, what we're doing in life. I can't tell you how many times previously I thought I understood what the path was, then a little bit more insight, and now I realize this is the path, and now I realize this is the path. So the path itself is an evolving, deepening sense of what the path is. We don't really know what the path is when we start. We just want some calm, you know? The sufferer wants a little calm, wants a little relief from the torments of the mind. Or it's just curious, you know. You know, we come at it, each of us, in different from different places. But, but the point is, the idea is that the teachings are such that if we actually do what we're told to do, then inevitably the view will be purified or be transformed. Old views that don't really line up with the way things are will fall away and be replaced with views, understandings, that are in, more in line with the way things are, and on and on from there. And that's exactly the point of these kind of teachings. You know, we're, we're you know, and it's, that's why it's okay for people to feel challenged, because the point of the, the teachings is to be provocative, not just to have an argument, but to encourage us to reflect, to take these ideas, and to try them out with our direct experience. Do they fit? Do they help illuminate? Is my lived experience more clear seeing it through the eyes of dependent origination? So maybe I'll go, yeah, Mimi. Um, so I, I get bogged down in the words. I do like the thing that made everybody, including me, laugh. Um, because he just isn't leaving any stone unturned. You know, he repeats the whole piece each time because what he's saying is each iteration he's bringing it all along. Mm -hmm. And um, and I really appreciate that uh, because right now I'm sort of having struggles with words. Um, I so I, I'm sitting with. Mindfulness, insight, being present now. That's 
what I get. And that, when I stay there, is that, that's what, you know, what, what allows me to deepen. Um, clarity, I don't get, so I don't use it. Um, dependent origination, sometimes and sometimes not. So, you know, I can just stay with the pieces that I know and explore those. It's also a good way of staying in the present, not getting into the thinking. One of the interesting things about using the Four Noble Truths is, you know, another way to um, provoke insight is to keep opening in, in a particular way. So when we open to dukkha and its cause, it, it provokes insight or release. So there, that's why there's a real emphasis on opening. But part of, the, part of what allows us to open is a sense of being safe. So we need some sense of the unconditioned or essential freedom because why else would we open, you know? So it's a little catch-22-ish. And that's why we need, you know, that's why a lot of people had awakening, probably, when the Buddha was giving a talk because he provided the proper motivation and probably could model, could uh, express the possibility of freedom in such a clear, visceral way with the people in the audience. And that, combined with the instructions, created optimal conditions. Because it's not enough just to open. We have to understand what that is. And a lot of times, opening can mean just bearing, you know, just staying put. And, you know, there, there's some truth to that. But it's more like um, opening really is more like falling back. You know, it's, it involves a, a dropping of defenses and, uh, and dropping of a sense of, of being uh, vulnerable, like uh, not afraid of being vulnerable. And so it, it's a, you know, it's a, an experimentation. And so we need, like part of, part of being mindful is to be interested in what it means to be open or to be mindful or to be clear or to be empty. Because like I said, the path is awakening to the path. We don't know what mindfulness is. You know, I mean, we have definitions and we have some flavors. But in the end, mindfulness isn't different than freedom. You know, like Thich Nhat Hanh so famously said, uh, the miracle of mindfulness, or a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. And this is, a, the way you described it, Mimi, this is exactly what we do want to do. We want to, we want to feel like we've got it, we know what we're doing, you know, and the, but the thing is, then it becomes repetitive and safe. <laughs> and, it's, and it's good for it not to be safe all the time. You know, the practice, not to be safe all the time. 
That's why, and it's not about being pessimistic, but that's why in Buddhism, you know, there is a lot of talk about working with dukkha because it's the easiest place to get to that very powerful edge where all of those instinctual habits of wanting to protect ourselves, to distract ourselves from what's painful or unknown, you know, they're all there. And then we, we provoke insight by not believing the old view, which is saying run for the hills or, you know, fix this or, and instead, like where, what is the view that can see that old primitive view, those old primitive, primitive views? So there's something about practice, like it or not, that it is a destruction we are destroying, letting go everything that we're the sort of conventionally dependent on and attached to. Someone asked in one of the small groups, I think, about it as a you know the practice is a grieving process. So you know it is intense, <laughs> and it, there is really no going back. I mean, you can. You can try to stop doing the practice and just see if that works better for you. No, really. I mean, it might. And then let us know, you know, what you're doing and how it's working. <laughs> because we should all be very pragmatic about this. Nobody here is interested in creating more suffering for themselves or others. Nobody here is interested in the long way. Like, one of the inter interesting things that Dharma circles these days, especially in the world of Dharma books, is like the fast way. You know, <laughs> is this the fast way, the quick way, or is this the slow way? And there's a lot of Buddhist politics around this question. But let's just be clear: nobody's interested in the slow way, right? <laughs> We're all interested in the direct path to freedom and release. And so it's just a matter of experimenting with our lives and seeing what works. I mean, the Buddha was the ultimate pragmatist. And the teachings, you know, the, the historic teachings of the Buddha are very pragmatic. And if they seem weird or, or kind of, um, not tight, but um, a little too black and white, we shouldn't just assume that, you know, he was just a little rigid or a little, you know, provincial or a little... Um, caught in his insight or something like that. We should, we should approach it from the point of view of realizing that every approach we've taken really hasn't delivered what we want. So let me really listen and look and try it out and then decide whether there's something of value here. And if we find like some of what he says useful, we should, we should see very clearly the beginning of faith. Well, he, he was right about this, he was right about that. This I don't know about, but maybe maybe it would be useful to practice as if this is also true, but I'll keep an open mind, but I'll see if my experience proves this out as well. And whether, you know, the, the cherries all come up. As <laughs> it is what you the, the mind in working suddenly sees Okay, this is what he must be 
the other way around, where you start out with the label and. And better than say, comparing self-view to no self-view is self to dependent origination or conditionality. Because we need something to explain how this has come to be, how this is happening, this experience is happening. And when we call it no self, it just seems so clearly wrong. You know, this doesn't seem like no self. This seems like self. But when we understand conditionality, and, and not understand it, more, it's nice to understand it intellectually, but uh, directly, you know, just noticing how, uh, you know, how this experience is this beautiful, intricate, amazing uh, play of conditionality, of causes and conditions. It's really beautiful, it's really amazing, and it's really impersonal. And we see that directly. And it isn't like, oh, I lost myself. It's amazing. Dependent origination is amazingly beautiful. And it's amazingly, it allows us to be so much more intimate with life as it is. Self is what keeps us feeling so alienated and apart, you know, the current view. That's why life feels so dry and barren. Dependent origination puts everything right in the middle of what is truly amazing. You know, that it's all happening as it's happening is amazing. This web. And uh, it, it shines. You know, the dependent origination as a direct experience is shiny. And it's, of course, not different than the mind. Everything is included in the insight independent origination. That's why it's so beautiful. Nothing is left out. And so when we start having glimpses of Dhamma or dependent origination or the way it is, it's not like self, no self. It's not like there's no choice. This is just makes so much more sense. It's just so right that uh, the self notion it's like, well, we understand it. You know, it makes a lot of sense why beings get caught, while I'll, why I get caught there. But it, uh, it doesn't, you know, it isn't like a debate or anything like that. And, and for some of us, uh, having a, an understanding of dependent origination can be very useful, an intellectual understanding of it. It can help focus the mind in life, in mindfulness practice as we're paying attention. Because it's, it's basically we practice seeing through that lens. We practice seeing conditionality. causes. We see that in terms of our personality. It's not that we're angry. We see that those causes and conditions and anger is coming up. You know? And now the world is treating me this way. And how beautiful, how beautifully lawful that all is, even though it's really painful. You know? or even really beautiful experiences, and how they are beautifully lawful too. And nothing is outside of this lawfulness. And it just changes, you know, it really helps the mind drop its obsession about good and bad. Because it's to make sense with independent origination. Because the, the web is so in, intricate and, and complete that there's no second guessing it. It couldn't can't be otherwise. And it doesn't dawn on the mind that, well, I could make, I imagine the world would be better if this is happening, or if I didn't do that, or, 
So the, you know, guilt and shame and those things fall away as that understanding deepens. And judgment, you know, being critical. And, it, and then we understand how to be compassionate. Because now we know we're not afraid of suffering. We can get really close to our own or other people's suffering. Because it makes sense. From a self-view, suffering does not make sense. It does not make sense that what's happening in Darfur or the different kind of oppression that's going on or starvation that's going on. How does that make sense from a self-view? It doesn't. It's just wrong. And it shouldn't be that way. And I can't handle it, so I try not to pay attention to it too much. I mean, that's, which is also unpleasant, because we've got to wall ourselves off from suffering, because it doesn't make sense. But with dependent origination, it makes sense. It doesn't seem wrong. And it doesn't mean that we don't respond to it either. easier going back? I don't think it would be easier going back. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your choice? Do you know what I mean? So it is intense opening, but look at the other beings who aren't doing the practice. Life is intense for them too. But the, just because people don't know it's intense doesn't mean it's not intense. People on the surface can have very well-structured defense systems, but that doesn't mean the mind isn't burdened. It just means that they're able to suppress it from the level of consciousness. That there could be all kinds of heavy, tight energy that they're living with, but conveniently not paying attention to through their different strategies. And we can always go back. This is what I mean by it's very pragmatic. Who, no one's making us go forward with this path. Who's, no, it's like your hmm? strategies all the way. I mean, obviously you see your strategies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. You know, those don't work. And, but, and you're still, I mean, you're just in transition, you know, so it just, you see a lot of suffering. Really absolutely. Do. And, but it is liberating to see that, like, it, it, this is why it's really important what we pay attention to. So we're not just paying attention to suffering. We're paying attention to all four noble truths. There's suffering, it should be understood, it has been understood, it has a cause. This cause should be let go of, it has been let go of. Suffering ceases. This should be realized. It has been realized. There's a path. This should be developed. It has been developed. So all of these insights are coming online, little by little, sometimes this one, sometimes that one, not necessarily in that sequence. And that releases a lot of juice, a lot of life energy. So that's what I meant about going back. It's like we're too big to go back, in a way, to those more narrow views. There really is no going back. And that 
sense of being you know too big it's there's just a lot of energy moving now and if we feel more alive less constrained less tight so my sense is it is really intense but it may be that you know like there's kind of this drama thing in the buddhist in buddhist circles where you know we can just really get into dukkha you know and we have to balance it with the third noble truth which is the re- the cessation of dukkha and that the lightness and the aliveness so as we're more aware of suffering all of our defense systems are off and it's just so nice not to be wearing all of that heavy armor in life but yeah we're definitely more exposed but it's also the experience of life is more real and more alive and more connected and if we need to we need to name that stuff that good stuff to remind otherwise uh, we can really get caught in this is too much you know i can't handle this this can't be right well it's easy to kind of become too intellectual to understand the suffering which I find myself doing, so I, I conceptualize the suffering, and when I remind myself not to be so serious, all of a sudden you feel that lightning, yeah. and you'll notice the moon light, or you'll notice, the, and it's like, oh, I wasn't totally here, you know, I kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. spun out a little bit, even though I thought I was present, I wasn't really here. Yeah, and so remember this phrase, or something like this, as we open to dukkha, which is inevitable, it's part of the path, there will be a strong tendency to uh, project a sufferer, whether it's herself or somebody else. But we don't need, we can be intimate with suffering without projecting a sufferer. Suffering is, no sufferer can be found. Where's the sufferer? We see suffering, no doubt. Sensitive to suffering, no doubt. But where's the sufferer? We have to make it in order for there to be one. We have to construct it projected and like you said Susan we notice it's not constant so that should be a telltale sign to us it's like we could be really feeling weighed down and then we go home and make a bowl of popcorn and turn on 30 rock (laughs) and then it should occur to us like where's the sufferer you know because even when we bring it back you know it's like we have to whip it up, you, you know, before it's like, oh yeah, there it is, <laughs> you know? So this should be the telltale sign that how much we're living in a projection or a constructed world. Any closing thoughts and then we'll end? Yeah, Terry. I have a story that I kind of carried around that I thought was instructive. And now with this idea of being, there is being a sufferer who's trying to just suffer less. And realizing like a lot of my strategies are just trying to help this sufferer suffer less. So here's the story that I don't know where I heard it. But there was this woman, she was in her 90s, and her husband died, and so she was moving into an assisted living home. And when she was waiting for the for her room to be prepared, one of the attendants was kind of explaining to her what her room was like. And she was like, Oh, I just love it. And the attendant said, Well, we haven't seen it. You know, well, you haven't gone and looked and saw what was arranged. She was like, Why do we need to see it? No, I love it because happiness isn't the arrangement of furniture, it's the arrangement of your mind. Happiness is decided in advance. Right? So I like this story, and I'm like, okay, so I can decide to be happy, but is that just the sufferer trying to suffer? Like, I'm still attached to it? Like, is she 
and I don't know her specifically, uh-huh. but like, if I put myself in that position, is she deciding this would, that there's going to be suffering and she talks herself out of it? And so is that delusion? Or is it really insight to realize that her projection about how it's going to be is where the suffering is? Yeah, it could probably be both. But I think I think it's a great practice reflection. Like, how is the mind, how is my reality as a sufferer or a non-sufferer, how is my reality arising out of my view, out of how my mind is relating? Because think about how much effort we're willing to put into fixing the world. Imagine if we had used all of that psychic energy to look at how the mind is relating, the mind is constructing, since you know we were adolescents, let's say, or 13 years old or something, we'd be pretty wise if we'd been paying attention to how we construct reality. And we'd be a lot better. We'd be constructing different kind of reality than the one we normally construct for ourselves. You know, and some children have that you know, capacity and, and then lose it because there's so much emphasis on, you know, it's hard to be happy, for example, when things are going bad for us externally because everybody expects us to be unhappy. And it's hard to be light and easy when things are difficult. It's like uh, tonight is actually the anniversary of Rini's death. Some of you were on retreat last year. Rini, good friend of many of ours, us here, and uh, also the chair of Common Ground's board of directors at the time, passed away last year during the retreat. And we, one of the things we talked about last year is that exact thing that, well, because somebody dies, somebody we care about dies, we have this expectation that we should feel this way or that way, or I'm a Buddhist, I shouldn't feel heavy, or, you know, whatever. But just, instead of just letting things be the way that they are, and not expecting whatever we're feeling to continue. Like, I've noticed when I've lost close people in my life that uh, I often don't have much feeling, and then seemingly out of nowhere, this big wave of grief will come, and I'd get like two, three sobs, and it would be gone. And I would, at first, I would, I thought, oh God, I must be so screwed up. (laughs) I don't even know how to grieve, or, you know, I don't feel anything, or, but then I just, I began to trust it. I mean, it's like, (laughs) where is it written is the right way one should feel at any time? let alone at, you know, at some loss. So thank you so much for all the comments and questions, and hopefully the talk is useful in some way. I don't think I'll put it on the internet, though. <laughs> well, it's, a little, it's a little strange. For, for the uninitiated. Maybe, maybe not strange, intense. <laughs>